For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In today's teaching, Jesus explains to the guys who he is, what he has done, and what he expects from them. Let's join Pastor Jim with a message entitled, Who Jesus Is. All right, so I'd like to welcome everybody back to the sanctuary. And if you'd take a seat for this morning's Bible study. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, Chapter 8. Mark's Gospel, Chapter 8 for this morning's Bible study. And while you guys are flipping through the pages, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Heavenly Father, this morning we give you praise, glory, and honor. We are grateful for Your Word. Your Word is spirit. Your Word is life. It's powerful. It's able to get down deep inside of us and transform us to make us more like your son, Jesus. And that's really our desire. It's the reason we've gathered. It's to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, just like Peter tells us. And so we pray that you would do that in us this morning through your powerful word and through my simple message. Make a difference in our hearts and lives today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen? Amen. Well, have you guys ever mistakenly called someone else by a different name? Or has anyone mistakenly called you by a different name or perhaps totally butchered your name completely? This is an all too common reality for some of us. I mean, my first name is easy, Jim, J-I-M. You can't mess that up unless, of course, you're from a different country. But my last name, it is brutal. S-E-M-I-S-C. H. I mean, my own family isn't sure how it's correctly pronounced. Is it, is it Semish? Is it Semich? I mean, it is a brutal, brutal last name. It's actually an adopted name. Now, I've joked around with my wife a few times about the possibility of changing my last name, changing it to something maybe a little bit easier, maybe like Jim Jones, but that probably wouldn't be much better, you know? <sighs> probably not a good idea, Jim Jones, Yeah. You know, when I first started coming to church here back in 2009, Pastor Ross had a hard time, I think he did, with my last name, and so he called me Smishmish. Him and his family, everywhere I went, Smishmish. What are you talking about? Are you guys making fun of me, or, you can, or is it just you can't pronounce my name? Now, wrestling in high school, that was brutal, okay? So the coaches, they couldn't say my name, so they, well, at least I think they couldn't say my name, so they called me Jimmy Sandwich, or Jimmy Spinach. I mean, that is embarrassing on the wrestling team of all places. Wrestling tournaments, those were the worst, though. All right, so you're at a wrestling tournament, you're in the auditorium, there's like eight different mats, you know, and, and the guy's calling out people's names through the loudspeaker. So over on mat one, wrestling at 141 pounds, John Roberts versus Jim. Long, awkward pause. <laughs> The announcer's trying to figure out what in the world my last name is. So, Samish. So, man, it's really annoying and a bummer when people mess up your name or call you by something that you are not. Now, I bring this up because in today's text, Jesus is going to ask the question, who do people say that I am? 
And of course, the multitudes are getting it all wrong. They're calling him someone else. They're saying, you're John the Baptist. You're Elijah. And ladies and gentlemen, not much has changed in the past 2,000 years. People today are still getting it all wrong. And so my hope and prayer for us this morning in our Bible study is that we would leave here with a biblical understanding of exactly who Jesus is. So Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, and we'll begin with verses 27 through 29. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. So let's pause right there and let's talk first about who Jesus is. Who is he? So Jesus and the guys are in the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is in northern Israel at the base of Mount Hermon. Now, this particular town was named after the emperor Caesar Augustus, a godless fellow, and also after one of the local rulers, Herod Philip, also a godless fellow. So Caesarea Philippi, not really a God-centered place, and maybe we can relate a little bit to that. Now, back in ancient times, the name of that town was Panias, named after the Greek fertility god Pan. And at this particular location, there are these large cliffs that are about 100 feet high. And if you go to Israel with us in May, you'll be able to see this site. It's absolutely incredible. Carved into the face of these large cliffs are these windows in which the people would put these statues of the Greek god Pan. Also located at these cliffs, is a large cave, a huge opening from which the Jordan River used to gush. And so the people back in those times thought that the gods exited and entered the underworld through those caves. And so they called it the Gates of Hades. So as you can imagine, all sorts of immoral behavior took place. And so it's fascinating to me at this particular place, a cultural epicenter for immorality, for godless living, that Jesus asks the question, that Jesus wants to know, what are the polls saying about me? What is the popular opinion of the people concerning my identity? In other words, who do people say that I am? Are the people recognizing me for who I really am? It's kind of like a political candidate who is convinced that he or she is going to be the next president of the United States. Sure, I am going to be the next president. Absolutely convinced. And so they go to a state that's controlled by the opposite party. And they ask the question, do you guys recognize me for who I really am, the next president of the United States of America? And what are the people going to say? They're going to say no. And that, <laughs> right? Yeah, and that's because they already have their mind set on someone else. And so the guys are going to give Jesus the sad news. They're going to give him the bad news, that the people already have their mind set on someone else. And so maybe James pipes up first, and he says, hey, the people are saying that you're John the Baptist, Jesus. That's who people are saying you are. And I'm just, I read that, and I'm like, what? 
Why in the world would the people think that Jesus is John the Baptist? Well, two suggestions for you this morning. First of all, Jesus and John were cousins, remember? John the Baptist was uh, born six months uh, before Jesus Christ, although Jesus is older than John the Baptist because his existence precedes Bethlehem. It precedes the womb of Mary as Jesus is indeed the son of God. So they were cousins, and so perhaps there was a resemblance. Perhaps they looked alike. And so when people saw John the Baptist and then they saw Jesus, they just kind of associated the two guys as one. That's one possibility. The second possibility has to do with Herod. You remember Herod is the man who killed John the Baptist. He had him beheaded because John was preaching that he shouldn't be married to his own brother's wife. Good for John for standing up for the truth. And so Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. And so he knew, he knew it was the wrong thing to do. So he's walking around now after John has been killed with this guilty conscience. He's walking around thinking constantly about John the Baptist. And then he hears about Jesus. He hears about all of these miracles that Jesus is doing and he thinks that this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. And of course, King Herod, with his power and authority, would have been able to spread that superstition among the people. So James pipes up and says, hey, they're calling you John the Baptist. And then maybe John pipes up and says, hey, they're calling you Elijah. They're calling you Elijah. And I say this, the same thing. What in the world are these people thinking why in the world are they thinking that Jesus is Elijah? Well, remember, Elijah never died. He went up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And the people were expecting the return of Elijah at any time. Malachi chapter four or chapter five and verse four. Malachi was to return before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the things that Elijah did, man, Elijah confronted the religious rulers of his time, and Elijah also raised the dead. And those were the exact same things that Jesus was doing. And so it makes sense that the people would think that Jesus was John the Baptist. But ultimately, the people were way off. They were way off about who Jesus was. And that's simply because they didn't take the time to get to know him. Maybe they saw him do one miracle. Maybe they heard one teaching or heard one report and they based their conclusion on that. They really didn't take the time to get to know who Jesus was. Good friend of mine, uh, his name is John. He went to, uh, he's over in China right now. He's actually a missionary over there serving in a school teaching English and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember when I met him, a couple of years ago, it was on a Friday night here at our church for our young adults group when we used to meet on Friday nights. I was standing out there and John came up, introduced himself to me, told me a little bit about himself, told me that he was born and raised in Southern California, raised in a Christian family, went to Harvest Christian Fellowship under the pastoral leadership of Greg Laurie. So just a wonderful Christian upbringing, a great Christ Christian kid. He moved to Texas uh, for a brief stint just to finish his bachelor's degree, and then he came to Santa Rosa. 
And so I was kind of telling people about John. I was like, yeah, we got this awesome new young adult. He's really getting plugged in. He's on fire. I think he's going to be a great addition to our group. And so people were wanting to know, well, tell us more about this guy. What's John's last name? And I said, well, I, I don't know. It's, it's John. It's John from Texas. And, uh, <laughs> and that kind of stuck with him. I mean, everybody called him John from Texas. No one knew his real identity. No one knew his last name. He wasn't even from Texas. He was from Southern California. And that spread, that rumor, that false understanding of who John is spread all because I didn't know him very well. So the people didn't know much about Jesus. Therefore, the popular opinion of that day was all wrong, just like the popular opinion of our day is all wrong, all because people don't take the time to get to know Jesus. Now, it may seem like a no-brainer to us. You know, we're in church every week, and, and we hear about Jesus all the time, and we could say, yeah, I could tell you exactly who it is, who he is. But there's a lot of people out there who have no clue. I'm almost 34 years old right now, uh, but for the first 22 years of my life, I had no idea who Jesus is, not a clue. The only thing I knew about Jesus was that he was in some paintings on the walls of older people. That's all I knew. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny, huh? I couldn't have told you that he died on the cross. I couldn't have told you that he died for sins. I couldn't have told you that he rose from the dead and that he was the only way to heaven. I couldn't have told you anything about Jesus Christ except he was in a few paintings. There are people out there who believe that Jesus Christ didn't even exist. Those are your atheists and your skeptics. There are people out there who believe that Jesus was just a good teacher, some super spiritual dude who found the path to inner light. Those are your new age folks. There are some people who believe that they're Jesus, and those are the people you want to stay away from, okay? <laughs> uh, there's some people who believe that Jesus was just a man, that he was just a prophet. Those are your Muslims of today. There are some people that believe that Jesus was one of many gods, your Mormons. And there are those who believe that Jesus was the first of all of God's creations, the first created being. Those are your J-dubs, also known as Jehovah's Witnesses. But those people are all wrong, all wrong. And that's all because they're not taking the time to get to know who Jesus really is. You see, popular opinion isn't always right. And we can't get our facts concerning Jesus from the culture. We have to go to the source. We have to go to the word of God for our investigation. And then, after we've done our research, after we've done our investigation, we base our conclusion and convictions on that. You guys have all heard the story about Lee Strobel, the investigative journalist. I think it was for the Chicago Tribune, I think. This man at one time was an atheist and a skeptic. And then his wife became a born-again Christian. And he began to take notice of the changes that he saw in her life and in her character, the way that she treated him, the way that she conducted herself in the family, the way that she loved the kids. And, and he realized something was, was different about her. And so it kind of launched him into this mission to inve investigate the facts concerning Jesus. 
You see, he had never really done an in-depth study himself. And so he devoted himself to that, researching the facts, finding out the truth for himself, not basing his understanding on popular opinion anymore. And afterwards, he had a choice to make. Go with what other people are saying or come in line with the facts. And as you guys know, Lee Strobel became a believer. And that's all because he took the time to get to know exactly who Jesus is. Now, you guys have heard the saying, the proof is in the pudding. Well, in our case, the proof isn't in the pudding. The proof is in the prophecies. The proof is in the prophecies. Prophecies are God foretelling the future long before it ever happens and then recording it down for us in the Old Testament. And there are some in the New Testament as well. Jesus' birth is foretold in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter seven and verse 14 tells us that Jesus was to be born of a virgin, written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was ever conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The scripture, the Old Testament scripture tells us exactly how Jesus would die. Psalm 22 tells us that his hands and his feet would be pierced. That's written hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented, and hundreds of years before Jesus Christ ever hung on that cross. And then Isaiah chapter 53 tells us exactly why Jesus would die, and that would be for the sins of God's people. He wasn't going to die for anything that he did, it was for the transgression of my people, says the Lord. Now, there are 300 plus more prophecies just like that, that Jesus fulfilled in his life, his death, and in his resurrection. I mean, mathematicians, they say that's impossible unless it's something that's been supernaturally ordained by God. Impossible. I mean, the chances, they say, of one person fulfilling eight prophecies in, is one in one with a 17 zeros after it. I don't even know what that number is. Dieter, do you know what that number is? It's, a, it's big. It's a big number. <laughs> it's a big number. 300 prophecies Jesus fulfilled. That is a God thing, ladies and gentlemen. That is a God thing. The proof is in the prophecies. So Jesus says, Hey, I know what the masses and popular opinion is saying, but what I want to know is, who do you say that I am? So he asks the disciples that question, and Peter pipes up, and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, Christ is interchangeable with the word Messiah. Christ is Greek, and Messiah is the Hebrew, and they both mean the same thing, the anointed one, the anointed one. You see, back in the Old Testament, the priests, the kings, and the prophets, they were all anointed with oil, which was symbolic of the Holy Spirit's present presence <laughs> and the Holy Spirit's power in their life for them to do what God had called them to do. And so God was essentially saying that this person who has been anointed with oil, this is my man for the job. 
This is the anointed one, the one who is going to lead my people, the one who is going to bring my people to me, and the one who is going to be my mouthpiece. Now, Jesus, he wasn't just anointed with the symbolic oil of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit himself. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those gospels, the early chapters, you can read about it at Jesus' baptism. As he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit of God descends upon him and rests upon him just like a dove. And so Jesus is the anointed one. He is our king, the ruler of the universe, the one who leads and guides us. Jesus is our prophet. He is the one who speaks the truth to us about God, God's representative. The Bible actually calls Jesus the word of God. He is the communication of God to us. And of course, Jesus is also our great high priest, our mediator, the one who brings you and I to the Lord. And so Jesus is our anointed one. He is our Christ. He is our Messiah. And he's asking you, the same question that he asked these guys. He's asking you, he asks me, he asks all of us the exact same question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Your answer to that question determines where you spend eternity. It's the ultimate question, the most important question. The words of Jesus, John chapter 8 and verse 24. He's speaking to the Jews. He said, if you do not believe that I am he, then you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, then you will die in your sins. It's not a question you want to gloss over because your eternal state depends on upon your answer to that question. Knowing who Jesus is and accepting that as the truth, him as the Christ, your Christ, your Savior, that takes you up. Not knowing takes you down. And so, a very important question. Let's move on and look at verses 30 through 33. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of Man. So we talked first about who Jesus is. Now let's talk about what he has done. Let's talk about what Jesus has done. So the guys knew who Jesus was, just like we do. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And now Jesus needs to correct their understanding of what he came to do. That's why he says, shh, don't tell anybody who I am yet. Don't tell anybody who I am yet. You see, they had a great mission. Their mission was to go and to preach the gospel to the whole world, to preach the gospel to all of creation. And so they, they needed to not only understand exactly who he 
was, the Christ, but they also needed to correctly understand what he came to do because people's eternal uh, condition was dependent upon that. And so Jesus needed to give them the exact mission that he came to do. We have the same mission as these guys, to go and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, to tell the world about him. And that's why it's so important that we not only understand who Jesus is, but exactly what he came to do. Because the last thing we want is to misguide someone and is to misdirect someone. You know, for our children's ministry on our applications, uh, if you come in for an interview after you do the application process, we, we have an interview with you and we ask you some questions. And one of the questions is this, explain the gospel to us. Tell us who Jesus is and exactly what he came to do. Because we understand that is so important. People who are working in the kids' ministry, man, they're representatives of Christ. And we can point people to him or point people away from him. And so, man, this is so important. Now, popular opinion of the day concluded that Christ would come to conquer the Romans that he would come to expel the occupiers and to establish Israel as the political superpower of the world. That's going to happen eventually, but not in Jesus' first coming. And so Jesus says, that's wrong, guys. That's not why I came. I came to suffer. I came to be rejected. And I came ultimately to die. That's what Jesus wants the guys to know. And boy, oh boy, did Jesus suffer. Jesus suffered more than any person has ever suffered, including Job. Suffered more than any man. I mean, sold. I mean, a good friend, three and a half years or so, a good friend of his who followed him around and and who served him, his own friend sells him out for 30 pieces of, of silver, that's suffering. That's getting stabbed in the back in the worst way. And then that friend has the audacity to betray him with a kiss. Jesus suffered, abandoned by all of his friends there in the garden, disowned by one of his best friends, the apostle Peter. Jesus is on trial there, he's suffering, And Peter disowns him, swears that he doesn't even know him. Jesus suffered, rejected by the religious rulers, the people who should have been pointing Israel to the Messiah. They reject him. He's lied about in court, blindfolded, and then struck in the face over and over again and said, prophesy. Who is it that struck you? If you really are the son of God, tell us who it is. Boy, oh boy, did Jesus suffer. Mocked, spit upon by his own creation. His own creation spit on the son of the living God. But worse than all of that is what happened on the cross. Jesus is crucified. He's he's nailed to the cross. I mean, The physical torture already is is beyond what I can imagine and fathom. I mean, the scourge and 
I mean, the loss of blood already, the nails through his hands and through his feet, the crown of thorns, but the worst suffering that Jesus ex- experienced was the suffering of his soul there on the cross. You remember, he was hanging there and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Think about that. This is the first time that this has ever happened. Every time I think about this, I, I just... I just go back to Jesus' relationship with the Heavenly Father and with the Holy Spirit. Remember, God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. So there's perfect communion amongst the people of the Godhead, amongst the members of the Godhead. So God the Father and God the Son, they can talk. They're in relationship. They're in communion. And so in all eternity past, perfect communion, perfect fellowship. All throughout Jesus' earthly life, perfect communion, perfect fellowship. And that's what you, what you see throughout the Gospels. Jesus praying to God the Father, obeying God the Father, following God the Father until the cross. Until we hear him say, why have you forsaken me? Your son, the one who's been in perfect communion and fellowship since eternity past unimaginable suffering that Jesus Christ endured for us. And then he dies. And so he's essentially saying to the guys, you think I came to save you from the Romans? Oh no, I came to save you from something much worse. The wrath of God. The wrath of Almighty God. The wrath of God is a scary thing. Revelation 20 talks about it. People standing before him, The heavens are trying to run away from God, but there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. And then people are judged for everything that they've done. Word, thought, deed, motive. And then it's an eternity in the lake of fire. A scary, scary thing. And Jesus says, I've come to take that for you. I've come to endure that penalty and that suffering and that wrath for you. I've come to drink the cup Jesus has incredible love for you and me. It's mind-boggling that he would do that for us, that he would be willing to die for our sin. So he came to suffer, he came to die, and he also tells the guys that he's gonna rise from the dead, that he's gonna rise from the dead. Jesus Christ is alive. He rose from the dead after three days. These guys were eyewitnesses of that, 11 years ago, when I became a Christian, and I've shared this story a whole bunch of times, but Pacific Coastside Community Church in Pacifica, California, first time going to church as a born-again Christian. And I don't remember what the pastor said at all during the message, but I remember the, the closing song because the Lord used that to transform me, to alter my life forever standing there in the worship service and, and I saw someone closing their eyes and lifting their hands and I thought, I'm gonna try that. I don't know what, what's going on, but I think it has something to do with worshiping God. So I thought, I'm gonna try this. I had just become a Christian like a week before that. And so I closed my eyes and I lifted up my hands and then I had some sort of vision where I saw the Lord come down. I saw blue like the sky and I saw the Lord come down. 
only been a Christian for a week. I don't know anything about Jesus other than I've given my life to him. I didn't even know what that meant. And I saw him stare at me and I remember saying in this experience, I can see you, I can see you. And I saw this dark black shadow and then Jesus began to breathe out of his mouth like you could see your breath on a cold morning. And I saw his breath come out of his mouth and it went into that dark shadow. He didn't tell me what the shadow was, I'm just assuming it was my soul. Jesus Christ is alive. He's risen from the dead. You remember in John chapter 20, after he rose from the dead, he appears to the disciples and he breathes on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Christ came to suffer. He came to die and to conquer death by rising from the grave. And so he's alive and well today. And that's the message that you and I are to take to the world. He no longer tells us to shh. He tells us to stand on the rooftops and to let the whole world know what he did for them, to let the whole world know who he is. Now, Peter gets himself into trouble because it sounded outrageous to him. It sounded shocking and appalling that the Christ would suffer because he had his own understanding of what the Messiah came to do. And so he says, no way, Lord, and he rebukes the Lord. And by the way, it's a bad idea to rebuke the Lord, okay? (laughs) Because the Lord is always right, and you'll always be the one who looks dumb, like the (laughs) apostle Peter. And so Peter allows himself to be used by the evil one. Whenever we go against God's word and we deny God's word, we're falling right into the plan of Satan and the evil one. Now, one commentator gave me some insight onto how these guys... Uh, would have felt hearing Jesus say that, considering their understanding of the Messiah. The commentator said it kind of would have been like the president of the United States just getting elected. And then his first announcement was telling the people that he was heading to Washington, D.C. to suffer and to die. I mean, we would be shocked. We would think that was absolutely crazy. And that's exactly how it felt to these guys. You know, if you talk to a Muslim today, they'll have the same reaction. They'll, if you tell them that Jesus Christ is the son of God who had to suffer and die at the hands of God the Father, that the son had to be put to death by God the Father for the sins of the world, they're gonna think you're crazy. They're gonna say, no way. God would never do that to his son. First of all, they don't believe that God has a son. But even if he did, he wouldn't do that to his son. He wouldn't do that to his prophets. He wouldn't do that to his people. But this was absolutely necessary. Because without Jesus enduring the cross, without Jesus suffering and dying and then rising, we wouldn't go to heaven. We wouldn't have eternal life. Let's finish up verses 34 to the end. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So let's stop right there. We've talked about who Jesus is. We've talked about what he has done. And now let's talk about what Jesus expects from us. What Jesus expects from us. So in light of who Jesus is, he is our Christ, he is our Messiah, he is our King, he is our prophet, he is our priest, he is our Savior. In light of that and in light of what he has done for us, he has suffered and, and died and then rose from the dead. It, it, in light of all that, it's not unreasonable for him to have some expectations from us. I mean, he did take away our sins. He did give us the gift of the Holy Spirit and he is taking us to heaven. And by the way, that's all free, can't be earned. It's received simply through faith. It's a gift of grace by trusting in the Lord and Savior Jesus. So he has one request of us, a simple request in light of all of that. And that request is this, follow me. He's talking to us. He's talking to you and me, born again Christians. One request in light of all that I have done for you, follow me. I mean, it's great that we're going to heaven. We are. If you're a believer in the Lord, you are going to heaven. That's awesome. But Jesus here is asking something more of you. He's asking for a deeper commitment. He's asking for a greater commitment. He wants, uh, he wants you to let him take control of your entire life. He says, my ways, my will, my word, guiding and directing your entire life. His ways in your marriage, his ways in the way you treat your spouse and the way that you love them and the way that you respect them and the way that you encourage them and build them up and treat them. His ways in your parenting, his ways in your relationships, his ways at your work or at your school. He wants all of you. He wants a complete and total commitment. He did purchase us with his blood. And so he gives us two keys, I believe, to following Jesus. Two keys. The first is to deny yourself. Deny self. In other words, it's not about me. Life is not about me. Not about my ways, my dreams, my hopes, my aspirations. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his ways, his words, his will, being completely devoted and dedicated to him. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, yes, I'm a Christian, but man, being fully dedicated and devoted to Jesus Christ sounds really boring. I mean, does that mean that I'm going to have to pray for like 12 hours a day? Do I have to get up before the sun rises and and get on my knees and pray for every single person that I know? Does that mean I have to read my Bible for eight hours a day? That I have to tell everybody in the world about Jesus, that I have to, every person that I meet and every person that I talk to, that I have to, to tell them about Jesus? And does that mean I can't have any fun? Does that mean I, I can't have my hobbies? That I have to live this like boring lifestyle? No. Following Jesus is really cool. And following Jesus is really fun. And being fully devoted to him doesn't mean he's gonna take away your hobbies. Doesn't mean he's gonna take away fun in your life. He just wants to be included in everything. I think of the, the guys, the disciples. 
These guys were fishermen, and they loved fishing. They fished a lot. So after Jesus died and rose from the dead, what do we see the guys doing in John chapter 20? They're fishing. They're fishing. These guys are fully devoted to Jesus, and they're out fishing. And then Jesus shows up, and he joins them on their fishing trip, and he actually blesses them, and they come out with 153 fish. And so Jesus didn't take away their hobby. He didn't take away their fun. He just wanted to be included in it. You know, I've talked about this in my last sermon. I'm I'm an addict, but disc golfing, I really love it. And uh, I'm convinced that the Lord doesn't want to take away disc golf from me just because I'm fully devoted to him. Matter of fact, on Christmas, the day that I celebrate the birth of my Savior and remember what he did for me, leaving heaven and coming down onto this earth. I remember Christmas morning, you know, my daughter's playing with her American Girl doll. I can't remember what my boys are doing. I think it was video games or something. And my wife was, she got a makeup box and all this makeup. It was pretty cool. So everyone's doing their own thing. And I happen to live right by a disc golf course. And so I'm just kind of sitting there like, well, I don't is it okay, honey, if I go play some disc golf? You know, it's Christmas, why not? And so I head out to the disc golf course and it's just me out there. I got the whole course to myself, you know, and it's just awesome. I'm up there thinking about Jesus, thinking about what he did for me and having a little bit of fun at the same time. And I get up to the top of hole 10, there's 18 holes on this course, and I bump into two guys, the only other guys on the course. I strike up a conversation with them. And one of the guy's names is Emmanuel. His name is Emmanuel. They're both lost as lost can be. And so I'm up there enjoying my hobby, fully devoted to the Lord, and I bump into two people, and I get to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And so denying yourself doesn't mean you can't have any fun. It's not a boring lifestyle. It just means you're fully devoted to him. And everything you are is his, including your fun, including your hobbies. And then the second key is, he says, take up your cross. Take up your cross. Now, the cross was a torture instrument back in those days. You know, it wasn't what we know it today to be. You know, the jewelry store, you go down there and you pick out a cross and you wear it. That's not what it was back then. It was associated with pain. It was associated with suffering, mockery, and rejection. Jesus took up his cross, and he did that for the joy set before him. He was willing to suffer. And so what is Jesus saying to us? He's saying, be willing to endure the challenges that come with following me. Be willing to endure the challenges that come from following me. Instead of running from the challenges that come with following Jesus, we embrace them. We don't allow the culture uh, to cause us to run and hide, but we embrace it. We embrace the suffering that comes with being associated with the name of Jesus. It's okay that they think that we're narrow-minded because we are. There is only one way to God, and that's Jesus. These are things that we are to embrace. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do, to follow him, to be fully devoted to to him. And there's no shame in that. Now, following Jesus is not the easiest thing to do in this world, but it's the right thing to do. It really is the right thing to do, brothers and sisters in Christ. If we don't follow the Lord, everybody around us pays the price. If we're not following the Lord, we're not fully devoted to him, 
We're not going to be able to encourage one another. We're not going to be able to build one another up and inspire one another to do what God has called us to do while we're still here on this earth. If we don't follow the Lord, others around us will pay the price. Now, my senior year of high school, and we're just going to close up right now, I, uh, right before my senior year during that summer, I signed up for the military. I signed up uh, for the Army Reserves, and I was going to uh, go to boot camp for the summer and then come back and go to one drill per month until I graduated, and then when I graduated, I would go on active duty. And so I shipped off right after my junior year of high school for Fort Sill, Oklahoma, in the middle of the summertime. It's a bad idea. It's super hot over there. I think the humidity is like 400, so <laughs> it's crazy hot. Now, being in the military, man, you need to learn to follow right away. You need to learn to follow right away. Because if you don't, everyone around you pays the price, especially in boot camp. Those drill sergeants are crazy. They're psycho. I mean, you get off the bus. I remember getting off the bus. Well, not even off the bus. The bus is pulling up, and there's drill sergeants running alongside of the bus, screaming at us and blowing whistles. Get out! Get out! Get your stuff! You know, just, it's scary. <laughs> and so you learn to follow right away. I remember uh, one of the other uh, platoons or whatever, uh, they were struggling with their drill sergeant. I was really grateful that I didn't have this guy because he just looked like he was on a mission to ruin someone's life. I mean, he just, he was mean. He, we had a girl drill sergeant, so she wasn't too bad. But this guy, oh my goodness. I don't remember what they did exactly, but it got them in serious trouble. They didn't follow a command. They didn't follow an order. They weren't fully devoted to what the instructions of the drill sergeant were. And so they had to pay the price. I think it was like two or three in the morning, the drill sergeant busted into their barracks, turned on the lights, ripped open all of their lockers, threw everything on the ground, turned over everybody's bed. This was our day off. You get one day off a week at Sunday when you're in boot camp, at least back then in the year 1999. One day off. And so because they didn't follow the drill sergeant's orders, they spent their entire day off cleaning and reorganizing their barrack, all because they didn't follow orders. Remember marching, and I do have the march down. One, two, three, four, pick them up, your left drive on. So <laughs> thank you. Don't tell Pastor Ross about that. Marching was very important. And so, I mean, you're marching all day long. You have to learn the cadences. You have to learn the turns. You have to learn the about face, all of that stuff. And if you messed up, if you kept going when the drill sergeant said stop, man, everybody paid the price. Everybody was down on the ground doing push-ups. Everybody was doing sit-ups. Everybody was doing whatever we had to do. It was a nightmare, all because one person wasn't following the orders. Everybody has to pay. You see, following Jesus isn't just about you. It is about you, but it isn't just about you. It affects everyone around you your friends, your family, 
the lost world. And so Jesus just has one simple request to us. In light of who I am, the Christ, the Messiah, your Savior, your King, and in light of what I have done for you, I suffered, I died, and I'm going to rise from the dead. In light of all of that, I have one request. Follow me. Let's do that today. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. We thank you that you have revealed to us who you are through the pages of your word. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior of the world. And we thank you, Jesus, for what you have done, suffering and dying for us. And we know that you live. And so we just want to follow you. Help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.